From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. Coming up, two words, death spiral. You cut back service, and that cuts down ridership, which cuts down money, which cuts down more service. Metro's riding into dangerous territory with no quick fix for its finances. Plus, will late-night service make a comeback? Our first riders panel weighs in. Yeah, I really want to love Metro, and I deep down do. I've just had some troubles with it. As episode 16 of Metropocalypse spirals out of control, starting now. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. Well, I just want something reliable. I would like frequent service. I'd like trains that run on time. I just want the trains to show up at a reasonable time so I'm not spending 40 minutes transferring and waiting for trains. This is what a death spiral looks like. Decades of deferred maintenance, old rail cars failing on a daily basis, the tracks need to be rebuilt from the bottom up. Funding is stagnant, costs are soaring, and riders are fleeing because Metro can't run the trains on time. So now we're on the precipice. Does Metro raise fares to cover its deficit, cut service, both? Because doing so will push even more people into their cars. And the death spiral begins. It was 2002 when then-Metro General Manager Richard White first used those words, and that was when Metro was experiencing good times. Record ridership growth, the system expanded beyond 100 miles of track, but White saw trouble coming. Now, I don't think Metro is death-spiraling yet, but consider these headlines of the last couple of weeks. Metro releases a quarterly report card. One in five trains is late. New ridership data. 15 million fewer rail trips in the past year. Translation, people are leaving the system. Metro's general manager wants to permanently end late-night service, and a Transit Authority board member says Metro has to raise fares next year. So what were Metro leaders thinking 14 years ago when Richard White let loose his warning? Chris Zimmerman was a member of the board at that time. We were thinking ahead to what's gonna, what, what does the next 30 years look like? And that was a large part of our concern then, was that we were watching the growth in ridership. And we had staff do projections and say, what happened? Because up to that point, ridership and Metro was was treated as something with no upper limit, that you could always absorb more. And we we basically had to tell the region, actually, you're going to run into that limit. You're going to run into it soon. So, you know, yes, we've, we've actually hit a large part of the very limits that uh, Richard White was talking about back then. But the de- and we've started to see the beginnings of what would be the death spiral. And it's up to us to decide now whether we're going to continue down that way or whether we're going to reverse things. And we do have some options. So what are the options? Well, let's consider the debate over late-night service raging right now. We're talking between midnight and 3 a.m. Friday and Saturday nights. In June, Metro temporarily cut that service for SafeTrack. It gave crews a crucial six additional hours a week for maintenance and inspections. But now GM Paul Wiedefeld wants to make the changes permanent. For him, it comes down to simple math. Pre-SafeTrack, Metro set aside 33 hours a week for maintenance. Wiedefeld wants to increase it to 41. But if Metro gives up on serving late-night customers, some say the rail system will become even more irrelevant to their lives. Here's Zimmerman. I would say I'm concerned overall that we're going backwards when we should be going forwards, that we should be increasing transit service broadly in this region, uh, not only because we need it for things like, you know, dealing with traffic congestion, which is what we used to talk about a whole lot, but for the fact that actually our economy depends upon it. 
and actually the demand for it is high and growing. So that's where we ideally should be. I recognize the fact that the people dealing with the system right now have to deal with immediate problems, and those problems are the result of an accumulation of a lot of years of deferred prop, you know, deferred maintenance, essentially. Um, the new and- general manager was hired with a mandate to save Metro. Now he's saying, well, to do so, we need eight more hours of maintenance per week, and he's getting pushback saying, well, what are you doing? You can't shut the trains off. And you know, that's the conflict that the region has, and it's precisely the situation that we were afraid of uh, more than 10 years ago, 15 years ago even. Uh, when we saw the tremendous growth in ridership, and uh, we felt that you know the, every indication was we wouldn't be able to keep pace, that Why? the growth of the system would not be sufficient with the investment that the okay. region was making, that if we didn't put more into it, that the demand would overstrip the, the, the supply and that the strain on the existing system as it began to age, because after all, this was a brand new system not that long ago, but it isn't anymore, and the earliest parts of the system are 40 years old now. And, you know, we warned about things like, uh, for instance, the inadequacy of rail cars, the fact that the original rail cars would need to be retired, uh, and that meant replacement, and that takes years and a lot of investment. and Billions. Frankly, yes. Frankly, billions. And frankly, uh, you know, there was never the political level of support uh, for, you know, that kind of investment. There was always, (laughs) there were always people willing to, you know, put money into a new line or a new station, you know, something brand new that you could get political support for. But it's very hard to get the same kind of commitment to maintaining an existing system and making a lot of the improvements to the existing system that would make it operate better that aren't as obvious, that aren't, you know, as kind of sexy, um, but back in 2002, we had a core capacity study done, and there was a major report. We spent a lot of time talking about it uh, at the Metro Board that was aimed at this question of how do we make the whole system run better, and that called for investments in the in the core of the system. Uh, I'd love to read end, that study. <laughs> people weren't willing to make. I, well, in a, in a way, I sometimes feel like you are reading that study because every time I hear about new proposals for you know some new way to deal. Uh, with a problem that's being discussed at Metro, it's something that came out of that report because you know the, a lot of the solutions are the same ones. Being able to do, for instance, you know a right turn from Roslyn uh, heading down onto the you know the blue line, or a left turn, uh, you know when you get to the bridge, so you could bring a, a say a, tr- a train running on the silver line uh, across the bridge as opposed to the tunnel. I mean that's just one example. I've heard that one. Okay, so back in 2002, a study says Metro must do all these things, but the jurisdictions didn't cough up new money, so the changes didn't happen. Does Metro leadership share the blame? We'll ask Chris Zimmerman if he's culpable next. Fourteen years ago, Metro's general manager said the system was veering toward the transit death spiral. So should the board have done more to maintain the system during Chris Zimmerman's tenure? Zimmerman says the hard choices being made now by Paul Wiedefeld and Jack Evans would have been impossible then, given the demands of the various stakeholders in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And if you tried to cut back service even a tiny little bit, uh, you know, the region jumped over all over you in lots of different ways. The Washington Post would have an editorial the next day saying, what are those guys thinking? I remember when, for instance, there was a lot of pressure to save some money. And uh, we had a, a member who was chairman 
uh, from uh, Maryland who was uh, working for a Republican governor. And, you know, he was looking to do something. And the general manager said, well, we had this thing we could go to on late night. We could go to, you know, a shorter consists, four-car trains instead of six-car trains, that kind of thing. And, you know, they did it. And immediately there was this uproar about, uh, you know, too much crowding on the trains late night. And he was beaten back right away. Um, you know, well, there are a lot of examples of that. And, and so now Wiedefeld's been given a lot more leeway to actually do some, you know, more extreme things. And I'm not questioning the necessity for that, but I, I, I do wonder how long people are going to accept that and, and how much uh, he'll be able to continue with this. I think what we need to know and what riders are looking for is, so, you know, wh where does this end and when does it ultimately get better? And is there a plan for something that says, we, after a certain period of time, we will start turning this around and we'll actually improve things? That's one. Number two... It's open-ended right now. We don't know. It's, it's really open-ended. And I think, you know, people would like more of a sense of how bad is it going to be for how long and when does it get better and what ways does it better. And, and secondly, there are improvements that can be made to people's experiences, even while you're doing this. And one of the problems is if you, if you have limited funds and all of that goes into the highest priority, you know, maintenance, uh, you know, safety related improvements, things like that, then you can wind up not doing anything, including smaller things that would improve the rider's experience. And there still is an awful lot that Metro could do. And I would hope that you know, with the kind of leeway that Wiedefeld's had, he might, and, uh, you know, I think he has tried to do some things and been successful in some things. But but some of the things that were always really hard to tackle um, would be worth doing in this environment. Things that affect, for instance, uh, you know, communications with riders, the service at the stations, what station managers do or don't do. How about improving the, you know, the information when you stand at the platform? You know, when, when we implemented what, are, what Metro called the PIDs, the passenger information displays, that they tell you when the next train's coming, that was a huge thing. Almost nobody in America had anything like that, although they had it everywhere in Europe and Asia, but it was a big deal here. And it made a big difference because one thing we found uh, is, you know, sort of the Disney lesson, which is people mind waiting a whole lot less when they know how long they're going to be waiting. And so that's why next bus and, you know, that whole uh, the real-time information on, on the bus system made a big difference and has made a lot of bus riders out of folks. So, you know, if but, but that system is now old and it's, you know, it's not particularly great. Um, it's an example of something that we were talking about replacing more than a decade ago. And, and those kinds of things could make a difference if they were part of an overall program. Then there's some, you know, bigger things as well. You know, we've basically gone to a, a situation which we have a reduced rail system. But when we talk, if you look at the reports from Metro, you know, about the diversion of, of trips, but uh, the most recent report noted that we didn't actually see that many people get onto buses. Bus ridership didn't go up nearly as much as rail ridership went down. Yeah, we well, talk about rail all the time on this podcast. <laughs> bus is another problem. Bus has always been the poor stepchild of the system. And, uh, you know, no kidding, you, you didn't divert them all to bus because we didn't increase bus capacity. And there are no if, bus if, lanes. We if, don't have traffic right, signal exactly. priority. If we knew, number one, if we knew that we were going to be in a, in a period of, an extended period of reduced rail service, why aren't we getting more buses? And, you know, I mean, I, I know the immediate answer from Metro staff would be, we don't have any more money for that. All the money's gone to rail. So that's one example of the kind of thing we need to think about. Secondly, Apart from um, having more buses, we could get more riders, more uh, service out of the buses we have if we did things like what you just referred to, like putting in bus lanes. And we've had plans for that kind of thing 
for years and yeah. years and not done most of them. Yeah. So next year, Maryland's uh, board member, uh, Michael Goldman, says uh, we have to raise fares next year and cut service and increase the jurisdictional subsidy. The deficit is so large, there's no way to get around doing all three of those things. The D.C. contingent, as you know, there's a jurisdictional veto on the Metro board. If six members are for something, six voting members are for something, but two from the same jurisdiction oppose, they can shoot it down. So you lose a vote, six to two. D.C.'s contingent, is going to veto any fare increase. This looks like uh, kind of an intractable problem. Where are they going to get the money from? How can they go to Arlington, where you live and where you represented for many years on the board there, go to Maryland, go to D.C., and ask for $100, $150 million more per jurisdiction? Well, you know, when I was on the board, uh, we pretty much said, you know, we were always willing to support what was necessary to keep the system operating and operating well and improving over time. And we would support increased subsidies. We were always willing to increase uh, the subsidy if everyone else would go along. And that actually is what's behind the, the so-called jurisdictional veto. What it really means is it has to be unanimous among the jurisdictions. You can, the, the you know, two jurisdictions can't beat up on the third. And I think that's actually a good system that has, has worked well for the region. But I don't want to lose sight of the big long-term question, part of which is the financing thing we were talking about. That, that component is a major piece. But the other part of it is to understand that given enough time over, long, over the long term, we have ways to deal with these problems. We've already seen that the metro system is capable of actually generating a lot of revenue itself. And although a subsidy is something that is worth doing because we get return in lots of different ways, you know, Arlington County gets a lot of tax revenue that, that more than makes up for the subsidy it puts in, even though it puts in a higher level of subsidy per capita than, you know, every other uh, jurisdiction outside the district. Um, but but we actually can bring the need for that subsidy down. Uh, land use is a transportation solution. And, you know, we've demonstrated that already. Uh, and Metro's own staff has run the numbers and done the math and shown that, you know, a plausible land use uh, scenario can result in actually no need for subsidy. Um, now, I'm not saying that's where we would ever wind up, but we certainly could reduce it tremendously if we do a better job of aligning our land use with our existing transit system. There are trains that run, you know, heavy in one direction, empty in the other. And that's a tremendous gain budgetarily when you turn that around. Yeah, and, and you have full trains going out in the morning. You get uh, you can have more balanced loads. You have a much more efficient system. Surplus. Absolutely. And the ju local jurisdictions would be making more money on tax revenue locally. And we've done a lot of the right things, so we know how that works. But as a region, we're still doing a lot of the wrong things and encouraging a lot of the wrong things and putting development in the wrong place by decisions that governments are making. So, you know, we're creating problems in many ways that aren't, you know, aren't at the Metro board, aren't at Metro headquarters, but all around the region. Chris Zimmerman, former Arlington County board member, Metro board member, and currently a vice president for economic development at Smart Growth America, a pro-transit uh, organization. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Mark. So what do you think about all this? We invited three Metropocalypse Facebook group members to join us in studio to talk about it. We'll hear their views next. As we ride on the Metropocalypse, let's meet three Metropocalypse listeners and Facebook group members. They're Chloe Batch, Joel Creswell, and Sean Sullivan. They're all professionals here in the Washington, D.C. area in their 20s or 30s. 
Chloe was born in the D.C. region. The other two are transplants who moved here for work. And we started by asking them about the plan to cut late-night service for good. All three of our panelists say they oppose it. Here's Chloe Batch. First of all, it's hard to kind of take something away from people that they've gotten used to. But it's been hard because Metro is really my only way of getting around. I don't like to use Uber too much. Why not? Uh, Just the cost, mostly. It can be a huge difference. Like, usually I am spending about $20 on an Uber. Well, there's a stereotype out there of millennials. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I had to use that sure. term. But, Chloe, you do, you're in the generation, right? Yeah. Uh, that they don't care. They they don't need to have Metro Rail till 3 a.m. They'll pull out their smartphone and do an Uber. Really, the cost is kind of too much. Uber, for me, is very much a treat. If I can't get somewhere by the Metro or just I know that I'm going to be late somewhere or if the Metro is closed at night, which has come up. I went to a new movie. I got out 10 minutes after midnight. I can't get home by Metro anymore, which would have been like really easy, but now I have to pay extra <laughs> to just to get home. But it's also just that like DC is kind of getting a reputation or has had one for being kind of a boring city. I jokingly call it the city that never sleeps. And if we don't want to lean into that, we really have to let people get around at night. I was at the Bruce Springsteen concert uh, last week or two weeks ago. I'm jealous. And Oh, I played for three hours, 45 minutes. It was awesome. Record amount of time. He just broke the record last night in Philly, I think, or something to that effect. But getting ready for the show, everyone's having a good time. And obviously, the boss has a penchant for long shows. And it kind of takes the air out of the room a little bit when you see uh, on the Nats billboard, this is the last train leaves at like 11 o'clock. And make sure if you're connecting, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Did you leave early? I biked there because it was an easy one. But I, you know, I think there are people who probably left half an hour 45 minutes earlier than they'd like to and with the Nats making a playoff push with the Redskins coming I'm a little worried for sports fans yeah well I just think that DC is a city that runs on the efforts of young people and you know I'm relatively late in my career to be making my trek to DC to work in the federal government you know I'm in my 30s most people do it in their 20s and so you you come to DC you're young and uh, you're relying on the public transit system. It's hard to have a car here. It's expensive to have a car here. Do any of you own cars? No. I used to. I do. You do. You still do. Okay. But I'm in my mid-30s, and I didn't for much of my 20s. And so I think it's just essential. You know, young people like to go out late at night. I include myself in that demographic. Absolutely. And so, you know, if, if D.C. wants to be a city where young people come and do their tour of service in the federal government, then they also need to provide the other services that young people need. Well, I'm sorry to break some bad news to you. It's unlikely 3 a.m. service is coming back. I don't know if you paid attention to the general manager's plans. He has four proposals. One of them would have 3 a.m. service Fridays and Saturdays. But guess what? Then the system wouldn't open until noon on Sundays. Yeah, that's rough. That doesn't work either. It's a zero sum, according to Paul Wiedefeld, who says he needs eight extra hours of maintenance Per week, period, he's not budging. So if you extend the schedule on one end, you got to cut hours at the other end. No, I think they need to come up with a more workable solution. I mean, let me preface that by saying that I have given Paul Wiedefeld the benefit of the doubt. I think he's making a lot of changes that needed to be made in the system. You know, the culture was pretty broken, and I think he's working hard to fix it. That said, I disagree with him on the late night service. I think, you know, something he's not considering is increasing the overtime budget. Chloe, what do you think of Paul Wiedefeld? Oh, I've definitely been following a lot more closely. I haven't heard anybody's name in Metro as much as his since Safe Track, especially. I think he's made some good decisions like refunding your charge on your smart trip card right. if you go into a station and then leave because there aren't any trains. Tap in, tap out. Yeah, but 
I have to think there's a better way for late night service because what's the point of spending so long repairing something if you can't use it? <laughs> right. The whole purpose of Safe Track was to get the system back up and running again. Uh, any thoughts on Paul Wiedefeld, Sean? Uh, I like him so far. I've given him the benefit of the doubt to be the descending opinion. I think the removing the 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. is a necessary evil, and I think the uh, cost benefit wasn't there for what needs to be done for the system. Uh, you guys paying attention to these big issues that are floating above the transit system, falling ridership, big budget deficits, potential fare increases, potential service cuts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am really concerned about the future of Metro. I think, you know, you've talked about this on the podcast before, Martin. Metro will always have a place in our region. I think this region is totally dependent on the metro system, but it could shrink to a skeleton of what it is now if we're not careful, if we don't worry about, you know, the service and the fares and the ridership. So, yeah, I'm concerned about the downward trend in ridership and the upward trend in fares. Do you think it might get to the point where... It's in such bad shape, people just give up on it. Yeah, I mean, I think... Meaning politicians, political leaders. To the extent that they haven't already. And, you know, I think also some riders are giving up on it. They did tell us to stop using Metro during Safe Track. (laughs) So I think, hmm, why are people not riding the Metro anymore? Maybe it has something to do with that. I know it's not really for everyone, really for people who are affected by the lines, but... But they assume you're going to come back when it's over, should they? Well, I've heard a lot of people have found alternate ways to get around. For me, there's just no other way. I really do rely on the trains and buses. And if there's no service, that's hard on me. And I'm not going to find an alternate mode if my line is running at all, honestly. Would you maybe move or get a new job or you don't want to deal with that? Oh, I've considered it. I have a friend who actually moved to New York City because she was so frustrated with Metro. Get out. Really? (laughs) Really, yeah. That's pretty dramatic. Sean, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you said you you only use the Metro on the weekends anyway, but the assumption is that people are going to come back and this thing is going to I think people are learning that there might be life after Metro. And as someone who follows transportation pretty closely, the recent news that I think the Maryland delegates on the board are thinking about increasing fares is giving me quite the pause. And I'm I'm getting I think we're getting closer to that death spiral where increasing fares and uh, lower uh, ridership might doom the system long term. So you've heard of the old transit death spiral. Yes, the death spiral. And I think think we might be getting there even with the safe track improvements and fixes the fta is finding troubles with the fixes that are being done and we're having derailments and red signal um i like how you just dropped that abbreviation on us too fta FTA. you're on top of things federal transit administration i didn't really know much about it before safe track but it seems like now that we are fixing the metro things keep coming out of the woodwork Everything seems like it's getting worse somehow. What's your relationship like now with Metro Rail? Are you on speaking terms? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have any? Oh. Yeah, I think I asked you before about any nightmare commutes. You said I think once a forty-minute delay or something on the platform. Oh yeah, that's normal on a weekend. You wait twenty minutes for one train, then you transfer, and you're waiting twenty minutes for the next one. I was once on a train that approached a track that was on fire, and we just kind of sat there for a while. I heard the. Conductors, I guess, uh, people in charge kind of discussing, oh, is it still on fire? Does it feel hot? Is there smoke? This was coming over the speakers. Oh, no. I was actually just, I happened to be sitting right next to where the conductor was. Yeah. So I got to know why we were delayed, but it wasn't too comforting. And Joel, you use bikes and Metro for your daily commute between the Reagan building and uh, Petworth. Are you going to 
give it up? I'm not. You know, I'm a transplant from the West Coast. This heat kills me. And so when it's hot out, I love to be in an air-conditioned train. If you get an air-conditioned train. If you get an air-conditioned train, that's a big if. But, you know, ever since you did the story about hot cars, now I look and I think, oh, is that car empty? I wonder why it's empty. It might be a hot car. Uh, but no, I have to admit that uh, for everything that's gone wrong in Safe Track, it's actually affected my day-to-day commute relatively little. So, you know, knock on wood. I will stick with Metro, though, uh, no matter what. I think it's an essential service, and I will, I'll complain about it more, but I'm pretty committed. Yeah, that's true for me, too. Aside from my segment of Safe Track, where it really just affected the line that I was on and the specific area I was on, it hasn't really affected me at all. Again, that was Sean, Chloe, and Joel. And you, too, can join our ongoing conversation. Join the WAMU Metropocalypse Facebook group and submit a question. Share your experience. We're also still collecting your submissions for what an honest Metro announcement would sound like. Passengers, uh, there's a lot of buttons and switches and lights and stuff up here. Give me just a minute, and I'm sure we'll be on our way. Thanks for your patience. That was listener David Gray. Send your announcement to metro at wamu.org. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney and Joe Warminski. WAMU's director of content is Andy McDaniel. Music on Metropocalypse comes from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack. You heard tracks by AXB, Double O Genesis, Dennis Malloy and Stanley Z. Ng, and Arlen Godwin. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. If you like what you've been hearing, please go to iTunes and give us a review or mark interesting on NPR One and it'll help us find new listeners and avoid our own Metropocalypse death spiral. Thanks for listening. I'm Martin DeCaro.